Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of the EMJ podcast. My name is Lisa Burke, a broadcaster based in Luxembourg, and today I'm pleased to be bringing you a discussion on the role of homologous recombination deficiency, otherwise known as HRD testing, and the progress of poly-ADB ribose polymerase, otherwise known as PARP inhibitors in ovarian cancer. Now, this podcast has been funded by a medical educational grant from AstraZeneca. And joining me for today's podcast are two experts in the field who are going to offer their perspectives on the importance of HRD testing and which tests are available, as well as their limitations and therapeutic options for HRD negative patients. So to welcome on this podcast today, we have Professor David O'Malley, Department of Gynecological Oncology at Ohio State University and the James Comprehensive Cancer Center in Columbus, USA. We also have Professor Christina Fotopoulou, who is Consultant Gynecological Oncologist at Queen Charlotte's and Chelsea Hospital in London, UK, who will be able to discuss how PARP inhibitors have impacted the management of advanced ovarian cancer and the future of HRD testing and PARP inhibitors. So welcome to you both. Great to be here. Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure to have you with us and your expertise. So let's just jump straight in with the first question, which is your thoughts on the power of leveraging DNA damage response, DDR pathways, in the management of ovarian cancer. Dave, would you like to start? Yeah, I think we're in a a time of of personalized and precision medicine in oncology in general, in particular in the treatment of ovarian cancer. And we really look at uh, trying to uh, disrupt the DNA damage response pathways. Uh, you know, we have this amazing group of medication called PARP inhibitors that have really revolutionized how we treat women with ovarian cancer. So we need to continue to identify uh, opportunities to utilize these agents at the right time for the right patients. Anything to follow up on that, Christina? Well, I couldn't agree more. We have reached, uh, exactly like Dave said, the revolutionary um, era now in ovarian cancer. Um, we uh, always talk about um, the patients who are um, susceptible to PARPs, who are HRD deficient, and who are the most that will benefit most from ovarian cancer. I always like to talk about, from PARPs. I always like to talk about the dark side of the moon, which are the other patients, the other half of the patients. <laughs> Uh, where initially we thought a few years ago that they do not benefit, but then um, <clears throat> newer trials have actually shown that even those patients um, derive a degree of benefit just smaller than um, the HR deficient patients. So it's a very exciting, very exciting times. We still learn as a gynecology oncology community who will benefit most. We have patients who are HRD uh, positive and they don't benefit and HRD negative and benefit. So we still have many things to learn. Um, So exciting times and super amounts of progress. It sounds like there is so much positive progress out there at the moment and going forward. Now, for our listeners, please could you explain out what homologous recombination deficiency or HRD testing is and why it's important? HR is practically in a very simple words. I try to I will explain it like I explain it to my patient for surgery. It's like it's this HR is like a, it's a process that is responsible for the repair of double strand DNA breaks. So the DNA is a helix with two 
um, like, like, a, like a ladder practically. And um, whilst genes like BRCA1 and BRCA2 are key proteins involved in this homologous recombination, there are also other key proteins like um, RAD51, like uh, PALP2, etc., that are consisting altogether in this 50% of patients who will be HRD deficient. So what happens is that defective HR leads HR, they lead to impaired single strength um, uh, break repair, and then practically the subsequent accumulation of double strand DNA breaks in the presence of PARPs bring the benefits of, of um, these newer drugs to those patients, especially with HR deficiency. This is the logic behind it. We call it um, as a, we call it a synthetic lethality. This is a term that many of us use, and. Um, some of us like it, some don't, and how accurate it is. Yeah, but it's it's a very commonly used term. Do you like it, the term, Dave? No, I think Christina is just, uh, as usual, is so much more eloquent than I could have ever said it. So, you know, I think <laughs> as, as we look at this, you know, the synthetic lethality is, is Christina alluded to. This is very theoretical, and we have about four or five different pathways that can be affected mm. or impacted. But Christina said it beautifully. This is about DNA repair and disrupting DNA repair. And when you disrupt DNA repair, the cells die if they're not able to repair themselves. So then synthetic lethality, the killing of the cells based on uh, targeting this pathway. That's the overall arching theme. To, your, to, to, to follow up on your question, you know, what is the HRD testing? Well, that's exactly what we're testing to see what is the scarring within the entire process uh, of the cancer molecular makeup. Again, how exactly and when to utilize it is, is to me the the, the, the best question. So I'll turn it over to Christina because, again, I'm sure her, her answer will be much more eloquent about what exactly is HRD testing. Well, actually, that was going to be my next question. You beat me to it, Dave. What's the current landscape of HRD testing? So, Christina, could you tell us how this landscape is evolving, please? So HRD testing has become much more commonplace in clinic than it was a few years ago. Now in the UK, and I'm sure in many other countries, it's a part of the standard guidelines, even in the NHS. The NHS, the National Health System in the UK, is a very restrictive system. And despite of that, it has funding for um, HRD testing in all um, high-grade ovarian cancer patients. Um, there are currently... Um, to test, it's the My Choice, um, the My Choice Myriad My Choice, um, and it's the foundation one assay. Um, these are the two main tests that are being used. Uh, so practically, the uh, what we measure is that it's, it's different in, in both tests. So in the HR, in the in the Myriad test, they are um, calculating more the there is a cutoff of forty two. Whereas in the foundation one, they go with um, a 14% original cutoff for the LOHA high tumors as opposed to the low tumors. So it's just a bit of different cutoff. However, the yeah, the principle is, is, is the same and it depends really in which country is being used what according to um, the funding. Well, and that was beautifully said, right? Which is, you know, there's there's two tests which have been tested in the prospective phase three trials, which is Myriad My Choice and Foundation Medicine. There are other commercially available tests, uh, which are looking at 
homologous recombination deficiency or looking at loss of heterozygosity, use different terms. So really we started calling it HRD. And this is the test. It's not a perfect test, but it's a, it's a good test. And it's the test that we have right now. Most importantly, Christina has said, this is really is become the standard of, of testing in, in the first line setting, identifying these changes in the tumor early on in order to make those decisions. And it's very important also to note, this is HRD test. So you get the BRCA, uh, uh, if they're BRCA abnormal, because they're obviously going to be HRD positive, BRCA mutated, that's both somatic and germline in the test. But it is not, and I hear this all the time, <laughs> you know, well, it's PDL one or a mismatch repair deficiency. It is, that has nothing to do with this. This is absolutely nothing. This is HRD. This has nothing to do with PDL one. This has nothing to do with MSI. This has nothing to do with mismatch repair deficient. This is, those are completely different tests, which do not impact overall in general, uh, do not usually impact the treatment of ovarian cancer. Well, you've given us such a full reply there, and I was going to ask you about the various HR tests, but something that's in my mind that you mentioned, Christina, is what sort of cap you have on you when you're dealing with this within a health service. Now, if you both had free choice and you weren't embedded, scaffolded by this health service, whichever one you happen to be in, whichever country you happen to be in, what do you think is the best HRD test on the market and why? Yeah, so I will talk from the other side of the pond because we have to actually operate our patients in London and then get their samples shipped over to the US to have them tested by myriad. So, of course, my immediate answer would be to have it somewhere more locally, yeah, somewhere where we don't actually have to ship them over to another continent um, as, the, yeah, as the immediate first answer. Um, I think the because of the reason that this test is now standard of care and we actually, the patients depend or we depend on this test to um, to tailor the care, the systemic care of, of our patients, it needs to be more easily accessible, it needs to be faster, it needs to be cheaper. Um, and we in Europe and in the UK are not as lucky as in the US where they have the myriad next door. Um, so I think this is the most um, important change that would need to do would need to happen. There are many in Europe and in the UK. We have many academically uh, developed tests, and I'm sure in the US too. Even in my lab, we now um, I'm actually do in the big debunkings that we perform. I do a tumor heterogeneity where. We, are, we have an academic um, um, HRD test where we actually see that there, there are different results of HRD depending on whether you take the tumor from the abdomen. So the diaphragmatic disease has different HRD score than the pericardiac node, than the inguinal node, than the pelvic tumors. So it's very interesting to see this, um, these changes. And I think these are things that we need to learn for the future, how to impact our care and to optimize the tests. But I think academic tests, academically developed tests will be, yeah, the way of the future, to be honest. Yeah, that's that's a loaded question, Lisa. That's a loaded Sorry. question. Yes, yeah, yes, these, these, <laughs> these tests have never been compared. Right. Never. That is the problem. Exactly. Yeah. That's that an extremely important point, yeah. and it's not very scientific if they're not uh, compared. Correct. Exactly. So we have we have two tests which have been tested in the phase three trials. We have two tests that are 
are either compendium diagnostic or, or approved, which is myriad in the foundation test. Now saying that, we need to get better tests. We need to improve the technology, as Christina said, with regards to uh, the accessibility, but most importantly, the precision. Um, and, and, you know, we'll, you know, I think that is important. I, I want to know every patient who's going to have the greatest benefit, but I also want to know those patients who have the lowest chance of benefit or ultimately no chance of benefit mm -hmm. not to expose them to, to medications. So uh, right now in the U.S., um, it, it's, a, it's a much different um access uh, in which we can have the choice. We almost have too many choices. So I really try to stick with the tests which are approved. So uh, the myriad my choice in the foundation medicine uh, LOH or HRD test. Well, it sounds like you're on the right continent for that, Dave. <laughs> yeah. I also want to very quickly add that um, whereas I think it's a very good evolution that we as scientists, as gynecology community, look for better and more precise tests. Unfortunately, there are also many alchemists who say that they develop or develop uh, very questionable and, and not of high quality tests that they then we sell to patients and to communities, which are dangerous, actually. So we need to be very careful of, um, of such, such tests without validity, without having been compared, without having been uh, proved in the right way. Well, that's very important. Of course, you're on the cutting edge of new research and therefore one has to be careful. And that leads me on to the next question, which really is moving outside of your sphere of expertise. What is the more general, more general level of knowledge and understanding of HRD positive advanced ovarian cancer among healthcare professionals themselves? And, you know, you're dealing with those healthcare professionals. Can you tell us about significant gaps in knowledge as a general rule or understanding in terms of disease diagnosis and patient outcomes? I'll start, Christina, because we're set up much, much differently. I, I think first and foremost, you, you need to... Uh, Patients need to see practitioners that are high volume practitioners who treat really uh, ovarian cancer at large expert centers. Uh, and, and Christina will tell you how, how she's set up there, which is really a model um, across Europe, which is different across the United States. The majority of people in uh, 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 people with ovarian cancer in the US are actually treated by low volume physicians. And so the, there is a lack of understanding of what HRD test is because it's really not utilized in other solid tumors. Uh, and, but the molecular testing is actually widely used in lung cancer. And now we're starting to see it in the GU cancers, obviously in breast cancer. It's, it's well ahead of where we are in GYN cancer. So molecular testing understanding is there. But the HRD-specific test is not as widely understood because of the uniqueness to ovarian cancer. Exactly. So I couldn't agree more. David has said it beautifully. Um, unfortunately, even though we work in the UK in a very centralized um, system, so in the UK, it's one of the unique places in the world, actually, where there is so-called centralized cancer care. So um, cancer, ovarian cancer patients, like every other cancer patient, are allowed to be treated only in dedicated cancer centers. Still, the patients will initially present to general practitioners in smaller units. And um, despite the fact that HRD is actually a knowledge of almost the last decade, still in the conscience of many 
general practitioners and even benign gynecologists, HRD is BRCA. Yeah, it's, it's, they say that HRD for them is a genetic mutation in the BRCA gene, which is not, of course, the same. And it reflects a much smaller cohort of, of the population. And unfortunately, very often patients also think that um, they always ask about genetic testing, about BRCA testing, and they, they don't really understand the difference of BRCA to HRD and and that even if they are HRD positive, they think that they have a BRCA gene positivity that then affects their family. So I think we, we as um, specialist gynecology community, we need to increase a bit awareness and understanding of what really HRD means. Um, well, you're and, doing that right now in this conversation. Exactly. Dave, thank think... you very much for that. Yeah. Dave, you had a point. Well, you know, I think it's interesting because I, you know, Christine, that's a fantastic point, right? Which is, we need to improve the understanding, you know, as, as we sit here and talk about HRD and synthetic lethality, we're not exactly sure what's going on. And it's important for us to potentially identify that. We, we, all, we know these medications work and we know the testing works to identify those patients. So let's simplify it, right? Every single patient should have BRCA testing of some sort. I personally believe it should be germline because when the patient's sitting in front of me, I want them to be able to talk to them about their genes so they can talk to their family members and, and not just germline testing, but also tumor or somatic testing for HRD at the time of diagnosis. So even if we don't completely understand what HRD is, let's know when to get the test. And that's at the time of diagnosis to make those decisions, which should be made in the first line setting of the treatment ovarian cancer. Everybody should know what the BRCA status is. Everybody should know what, what the tumor HRD status is. Well, that sets me up perfectly for my next line of thought, which is really how common is HRD testing at diagnosis? How important is it to determine the best course of treatment for women with advanced ovarian cancer? And then is HRD testing at disease recurrence important? I want to hear Christina's answer because they have a very they have a they have a very different model from us. So I I, yeah. I want to hear your answer, Christina. So um, since a few years, I think it's three four years. Um, actually, we're very very grateful to AstraZeneca, who has a collaboration with the NHS with the National Health System, that all patients with a primary diagnosis of a high grade ovarian cancer um, is being HRD tested, and it all goes via myriad. So thank you very much um, for that. There is no routine HRD testing at recurrence, unfortunately. Um, not routinely. We try to implement it now with additional funding and, and um, other, other mechanisms. I personally think that testing at resistance recurrence is important. Um, it might be a genomic scarring that will remain and reversions or new mutations uh, that might affect treatment um, and, 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 and explore uh, pathways of resistance is important. Um, so I think this is something that we also have um, to explore. Uh, we have started, I mean, the UK has England, Wales and, um, and Scotland. And Northern as Ireland. Strange as it, exactly, exactly. As strange as it, as it sounds, um, the, there are different rules in the different between Wales, between England. So, for example, Wales only has started a few months ago to do HRD testing. They only did BRCA testing. So many of my Wales patients who came down to um, England to be operated, we actually had to take over the HRD testing because it wasn't done locally. So there are still many limitations that we have to overcome, but I think we're going the right way. 
Well, this is always the way with science and medicine, isn't it? You're dealing not just with the science of it, you're dealing with the political... politics. (laughs) So, Dave, moving continents, moving moving regimes, tell us. Well, you know, it's not... I wish it was 100%. And, you know, it was pretty black and white in my, you know, our previous discussion. You know, and we look now at the germline testing after, you know, banging our heads against the wall, educating the world which, you know, at best we used to be about 50% of patients are treated. It now looks in the United States as greater than 80, 85%, maybe not quite 85, but but closer to 80%, maybe as 70 to 80%. So we've made inroads. It should be 100%, okay? Now, when we look at HRD testing, that data is not as clear. It seems about half the patients are getting. So we're getting back to what we were at germline testing previously. So we need to continue to educate. And again, Lisa, thank you for taking on this important subject in this podcast. Uh, So when we look at this, uh, it it needs to continue to become ingrained. It has to really become algorithmic. Everybody gets HRD testing. And as Christina said, the importance of this in the first line to me is exponentially more important than the recurrent. Just published a paper in GY Oncology with regards to the Aerial 3 data, which is a recaprib in extreme responders. And we found that, yes, BRCA is important. Yes, RAD51C and D are important. Uh, and the HRD test is important, but probably the most important features are the clinical features in the recurrence. So the test seems to be the most predictable in the first line compared to the recurrence setting. So I'm sorry, Aerial 3 was a, a recurrent trial in the platinum sensitive space. So the most important predictor of the precision of the test is in the first line setting and not as predictive in the recurrent setting when the clinical features, did they get a complete response to their platinum therapy? Did they get normalization in their CA125? Did they have a long platinum-free interval is a better predictor of patients who are going to get benefit from PARP. Uh, and we don't have that information in the first line and that another reason the HRD test is so important. Well, that's very clear. Thank you, Dave. Christina? Um I would even go in the fully agree with David. He couldn't have said it better. Even in the neoadjuvant setting, very often when we don't do HRD from the primary tumor, but after um, neoadjuvant chemotherapy, very often we can't get conclusive results or even no results because of the changes that have been happening um, in this few last months because of the chemotherapy. I just want, before we go to the next question, um, say that we have just published um, in, in cancers the QPI, so quality indicators for um, standard of care and the best care uh, in the UK by the British Gynecological Cancer Society. And we have set as a target as high as 90% patients with non-mucinous epithelial ovarian cancers to be tested for germline BRCA1 and BRCA2. We have set it as BRCA1 and BRCA2 to make it more UK-based and haven't gone to HRD yet, but we have set the target as high as 90% so that we set a, a standard that everybody should strive for. Thank you, Christina. Now, moving on to PARP inhibitors, how have they impacted on the management of patients with advanced ovarian cancer? Well, I tell you what, I'll, I'll, I'll start because, uh, the, you know, it, Christy and I are, we, we talk about this all the time. This the is our passion. Page. And yeah, it, but I, I want to start, and I, I love Christina's answer to this. I want to start with BRCA patients in the front line setting with solo one. And uh, Paul DeVesto just presented this data at ESMO. And, and we have 
about 47, 45 to 47% of patients who have not recurred at seven years after the diagnosis of primary advanced ovarian cancer. That means most likely they are cured. The background of that is probably about 15% previously were, were cured, and, and, and a lot of people don't like to use the word cured. I think we need to change the dialogue where we have to talk about what's the chance we're going to cure patients. So in BRCA patients, about 45 to 50% of advanced ovarian cancer patients are cured if they have a PARP inhibitor. That is absolutely extraordinary. And I think we need to, for any listeners who might not be working in this field, we have to say, I mean, I know as a non-medic, what I believe is the percentage of people with ovarian cancer who, to use the word survive it for five years or more, whatever you want to use as the definition of survive it is. But what currently is the survival rate and how do you define survival? And what is the survival rate of people who have ovarian cancer? Because we haven't actually said that here. Let, let, let's, let, let, let me respond to that because I used my, my terms very precisely for a reason. They had not recurred at seven years. So people who are alive at five or seven years, many, if not most of them, will still have disease in previous reports. So they'll be alive, but they're battling ovarian cancer on chronic chemotherapy. You know, they're going to most likely ultimately succumb to their disease. So the reason I use the word cure is those patients did not recur. And if they haven't recurred at seven years, they're most likely not going to recur or very low chance, right? So those are, that's why I want to change the dialogue from survival, which, which is, has been amazing. We've basically tripled survival in the last 20 years, but curing more patients. Survival is so important, and I'll stop there. That's, an, that's giving me goosebumps. It's so wonderful. Christina? I mean, I couldn't agree more. I, I, I know the passion of Dave, and I remember I, was, uh, I heard him talk in, uh, in New York, and I just said, well, he, was really, he couldn't be less passionate about it, and he's fully right. I think there shouldn't be any ovarian cancer patient, apart, of course, for the primarily platinum-resistant refractory ones um, who should not have a PARP at some point in their journey. Um, and we shouldn't def- we definitely shouldn't, shouldn't limit it to patients who are HRD positive. We know that also patients with HRD negativity, they will, they will benefit and we should give them the chance. I think the platinum sensitivity is a, is a better marker to response um, to the PARPs than, than almost HRD sometimes. Um, and we just need, as they very correctly said, to identify better patients who will benefit and those patients who won't, so that we spare them toxicity and we direct them to other um, to other targeted agents. I mean, we are currently doing massive efforts to explore mechanisms of overcoming resistance, um, or in, in, even in resistant patients. So it's a lot that the future will bring. But let's talk about the HRD for a second too, right? So we talked about BRAC, but we look at the HRD, the other data which was presented at ESMO was Apollo 1. And again, looking at patients now about five years of follow-up for not as much, but again, about 44% had not recurred at five years who are HRD positive. So so we have that, that what I said about BRCA also applies to HRD positive. Now, remember, Paolo 1 is BEV plus the PARP, in this instance, Olaparib. So Be- and this was compared to BEV. So the benefits that we see, these differences in the curves, are against an active comparator, BEV, or, or uh, the, the trade name for that is Avastin, but Bevacivimab is the generic, which is 
And, and all the other trials we're talking about is against a placebo or, or observation. So not only are we seeing it in BRCA-positive patients, but also HRD. Now, an HRD test negative, uh, which Christina has just alluded to, the, the gains are much more modest, but the hazard ratios, the improvement in progression-free survival is still at uh, 0.6 or 40% improvement. You know, 10 years ago, if you would have told Christina and I that we have a trial with a 40% improvement in progression-free survival, yeah. we would have been we doing jumped. We jumped. Jumped. We jumped. 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 Exactly. it. Moderate. Oh, it's moderate. moderate. Yeah. It's, it's Yeah. It is pretty amazing how we, our expectations have changed because of PARPs, really because of PARPs and these amazing results that we're seeing. It's outstanding. And I mean, just to see your excitement and energy, imagine the patients. So let's then think about the most significant clinical trials that have been conducted with PARP inhibitors in advanced ovarian cancer. So I know you alluded to this, Christina, particularly. Um, what's been learned about the, from these trials about the treatment of patients with and without HRD? You also spoke to this, Dave. And which clinical trials are still needed in this area in the future? Yeah, so, I mean, Dave has very beautifully already um, addressed some trials. So we have, um, in the primary setting, we have the Paola trial, we have the uh, Prima, the Prime, the Velia. These are all um, studies that have confirmed the high, highly significant benefit of of, um, of the PARP inhibitors, not in just HRD, but also in HRP or HRD-negative patients. Um, we have, of course, the solar data, which are the initial archival um, data. There are what these studies have shown um, are the, the fine-tuning, the differences between the degree of benefit in BRCA. For example, in the in the Prima study, all patients had um, benefit regardless of their um, HRD status and BRCA status. In the Paola study, it was um, the significance was mainly for the patients who were HRD positive and, and, and the BRCA patients, of course. In the Valley, it was mostly the BRCA patients, if I remember correctly, but I think it was also a different cutoff that was um, that was used. Um, we then uh, followed with a Chinese prime study where um, also the HRD negative patients without residual disease, they showed the benefit um, as opposed to the prime to the Prima study that was mainly the inoperable or, or high volume postoperative residual disease patients. Um, so I think the more trials we do, the more we expand <laughs> the profile of the patients who will um, benefit. What trials would you like to see done? So, uh, yeah, so before uh, there are some trials now that compare, as, as David very, very nicely said in the Paola, it was BEV and Olaparib versus BEV. What I always wanted to see, and there are, I think, now four trials on the go with that, or three, um, where the placebo is, um, so it's, it's BEV and Olaparib, where practically you don't have the BEV, yeah, to see whether we did need the bevacizumab um, in those patients. Yeah, and the only the only one you forgot to mention was Athena, I think, Christine. I I don't I don't know if you ah, mentioned Athena, that. Yes, yeah, yes, so yes, Athena no, was just presented no, at right. yeah, very but, right. but, Brad, Brad, but with Brad yes. at ASCO in uh, yes, 2022, yes. again mm -hmm. showing wildly positive results in BRCA, HRD positive, mm -hmm. intent to treat population, and mm -hmm. then in a in a non-planned sub-analysis also showed the benefits in the HRD negative. Again, more modest benefits. But benefits. So there's, there's, Christine, you, you alluded to this as in, in there's four trials that are still that have been completed, which, which are we're awaiting results. 
Uh, all three drugs, niraprib, olaprib, and rucaprib, are being tested. Uh, all of them utilize uh, BEV as an option, uh, except for a Athena combination. And the and the only one who required BEV was Duo or uh, and got OV forty six, which was. Uh, with a lap ribbon derva. So what we're doing, uh, Lisa, and what we're referring to here is we're now taking this antivascular therapy, the PARP inhibitor, and now we're combining it with uh, immune therapy, which has been very disappointing in ovarian cancer by itself, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, which has been disappointing by itself. But there is one trial that uh, uh, we presented a couple times Mediola, uh, which looked oh, yes. at Derva, Alapriv, and Bev for treatment. And we saw responses greater than 80% with the, the triple combination. So it, it there's some sense uh, with regards to changing the microenvironment that this triplet combination may have the greatest benefit. Now we have three of the four trials, which will at least partially answer that question that should read out the next year or two. So hopefully the landscape changes even more and we're gonna see more patients cured, cured with HRD, BRCA and HRD test negative. These numbers just keep coming at me and your energy is so impressive. I mean, I, it sounds like such an exciting time to be working in this field to see such outstanding results. I do want to just go back to patients that you have spoken about before the therapeutic options for HRD negative patients whose, you know, they derive more modest, limited benefit from the PARP inhibitors. So what does their future look like? Um, thank you very much. So again, dark side of the moon, we shouldn't forget those patients. It's not that it's the minority, it's almost a half. No? So um, we, according to the NICE guidelines, so the National Institute of Clinical Excellence in the UK, um, we have the marketing authorization for monotherapy of with Miraparib for those patients. Uh, which is now approved since last year or one and a half years. So these patients will have access to PARP inhibitors, um, even if they are uh, HRD negative and even if they're operated tumor free upfront. In regards to PARP resistant patients, we have explored um, options with uh, PI3K inhibitors, with, uh, with uh, a combination of um, other, or to exploit other ways of um, uh, synthetic lethality, if you want to call it like that, with V1 or AT. Are inhibitors in combination with PARPs. There is a very nice study, I keep forgetting it, by Costadinopoulos, which is in platinum-resistant patients. Um, Olaparib with, I don't remember what anymore, but it was also very impressive result, despite the resistance um, setting. So, yeah. Dave? Yeah. So, you know, I think that it, it is the dark side of the moon. I like that. Um, you know, th these are patients who's, who's who's the benefit are more modest with single agent PARP. This is the greatest opportunity or highest unmet need in the, in the upfront setting. And again, when we talk about impact and curative intent uh, or cure in these patients, I can't say that about HRD test negative patients. We don't seem to be curing more patients. We're helping them the, uh, uh, keep their disease away longer. And we know if we keep the disease away longer, patients feel better. Time and time again, the patent and patient reported outcomes shows keep the disease away, people feel better. Um, obviously, there's some cost to that, both figuratively and literally. So when we look at this, 
uh, and we're looking at the test. For me, it's become very simple in my practice. And this is not true in every practice across the U.S. or across the world, clearly. But it's in my mind, it's become pretty straightforward. And uh, Philip Harder's uh, uh, unplanned sub-analysis of the Apollo 1 data looking at, quote, low-risk ovarian cancer patients, which are patients who are stage 3 and completely resected at the time of surgery, actually showed the greatest benefit of the combination of Bevin and Laparib, ridiculously so, were in the lowest-risk patients, when historically we have not used Bev in the lower-risk patient population. That sub-analysis changed the way I looked at it. So this is, to me, has become very simple. Bev for everybody, everybody, yeah. low-risk, high-risk, yeah. test their HRD test. If the HRD test is positive, add a Laparib. Now, when we look at HRD test negative patients, PARP versus BEV, all cross-trial comparison, because this has never been done in the head-to-head setting, all cross-trial comparison, BEV seems to be a, at least as good as PARP, and you could even argue maybe a little bit better, in the HRD test negative. Again, this is cross-trial comparison. This is the, uh, I'm not saying this definitively, but I'm saying I feel confident that BEV by itself is probably just as good as is HRD uh, as PARP, excuse me. Now, if and when they recur, because most of the HRD test negative patients will recur at that same rate, about 85%, uh, that they then, if they have those clinical factors I alluded to earlier in this podcast, if they have a complete response, if they have a long platinum-free interval, if their CO125 normalizes at recurrence with platinum-based therapy, then I bring PARP in at the recurrence setting. So I let the clinical features dictate when I use in the recurrent setting more than the HRD test negative. Well, Dave, you've really wrapped up there. And I know Christine is going to come in for a final word, really, your, your conclusions on the future, what it looks like for HRD testing with the PARP inhibitors, I mean, you've given us a great overview, Dave. Uh, Christina, what do you think? Very quickly, coming back to what uh, David amazingly said um, about um, the, the, the degree of benefit derived from the PARPs. I very often, as a surgeon, being, I mean, being asked whether we really need to operate patients um, anymore since we have the PARPs and we can just give the PARPs and everything melts away. And actually what we see is that the package of care is what matters. The patients who actually have the best surgery, the least residual disease, um, are those who benefit most from the PARP. So if you see that exactly as David said, the hazard ratio in the low risk, completely tumor-free upfront operated patients is 50, it's, it's 0.15. It's 85% improvement of, 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 the, of the survival practically of the PFS in those patients who we think it's low risk and they actually don't need anything extra. So it's exactly the opposite It's exactly the opposite way. So it's the package of care. It's maximal effort across all levels, surgery and PARP and systemic treatment and maintenance, etc. And I think this is the future, really. I think this is that, that we have to optimize the care of our patients across all levels that are available to us and not choose one over the other. I think we need to learn a bit more of how to profile patients who will benefit from what but it's not really one treatment over the other but but how to better combine the the weapons that we have really in in this disease and uh, the future is very bright that's how, what i would say lovely to have a medical conversation with such optimism such optimism such energy dave have you any final words 
You know, I think we need to continue to look at working with our regulatory authorities that oh, progression-free okay. survival is the primary outcome because these patients will live 10 plus years and, and impacting their survival is challenging, but it still needs to be our goal. And a surrogate for overall survival is curing patients. So let's, if they haven't recurred within five years, really about three and a half, but probably five. If they have recurred within five years, they're, they're, there's an extremely high chance that they're cured of their disease. And so we really need to look at that as a deliverable outcome. What do we need to do to cure more patients and change the dialogue to, yes, these are intensive therapies, sometimes expensive therapies, but if we cure them and they never need therapy moving forward, I mean, that's the goal, right? Let's cure more patients. Thank you for having me today. Wow. To hear the word cure in relation to an outcome for cancer patients, it's utterly extraordinary and so wonderful to hear this work in my lifetime. Thank you so much, Professor David O'Malley and Professor Christina Fotopoulou for joining us today. Your wonderful energy, your expertise and insights around the importance of HRD testing, PARP inhibitors and so much more besides. I think you've given us all so much to go away and think about and hopefully a lot of medical experts working in this field or with the field adjacent to this work can learn more and want to learn more about how they can help patients that they see through their system. And so for you, dear listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We release a new episode every Friday, as well as plenty of bonus episodes like this one. So until next time, take care and goodbye for now. 